welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined by my colleagues Kathleen Hallisey and Danielle Vincent. Hi, Danny. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Hi, Alan. Once again, thank you for tuning in to this latest podcast that's brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the Mormon Church and child abuse. So that is a very brief introduction, and I'm going to hand over to Kathleen to expand on the introduction and explain why we're going to be talking I'm going to just give a quick trigger warning here. We are going to be talking about child sexual abuse and um, quite horrific abuse at that. So I do just want to mention that to our listeners. This potentially is going to be a quite triggering podcast. So it might be something if any of the issues of child sexual abuse or sexual assault or abuse do affect you, then it might be the time to to turn off the podcast and and go do something else that might be a little bit less upsetting. But if you are able to listen, welcome. And I think it's a really important topic that we're talking about today. So this has all come off the back of a news headline in the Associated Press in the U.S. that was published on the 4th of August about a really particularly horrific case of child sexual abuse in Arizona, which involved the Mormon Church. Just to give a bit of background here, the Mormon Church is also known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I just want to differentiate that from the fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, which is a topic that Danny and I spoke about last week and was featured in the Netflix documentary, Keep, Sweet, Pray, Obey. This is different from that. This is not the fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it can be sometimes referred to as the Mormon Church or the, the LDS Church, and that's what we're talking about today. So there's about 16 million members of, of the Mormon Church worldwide and about 200,000 members in the UK. Just to put that in context, there's about 130,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, so a lot more Mormons in the UK than, than say, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. I have to say, when I, when I looked up that information, I was quite surprised. I didn't realize that there were so many Mormons in the UK. I assumed that, you know, it's it's... A much bigger population in the U.S., which it is, but more in the U.K. Than, than I had anticipated. So just to give some brief background into the case and the article that was published in the Associated Press, as I mentioned, there was a little girl in Arizona whose name was MJ, and she was five years old when her father, Paul Adams, admitted to his Mormon bishop that he was sexually abusing her. The bishop, whose name was Herod, called a hotline that was set up by the Mormon church for bishops and others to seek advice on what to do when confronted with an allegation, or in this case, an admission of child sexual abuse. The advice that he was given was that he was not to contact police or social services because the admission was given in the context of a clergy penitent relationship. So Bishop Herod then went on to counsel Mr. Adams for another year, and he even brought in Adams' wife, Lisa, to one of the counseling sessions and told Adams that he needed to tell his wife that he was abusing their daughter, MJ, in order that she could be aware of what was going on and, and she could try and take steps to protect her children. 
Fast forward a few years, in 2012, a new bishop took over and, and Bishop Herod told that new bishop, whose name was Mozzie, that Adams was abusing his daughter. Mozzie apparently also contacted church officials who told him that he needed to convene a disciplinary hearing against Adams, the result of which was that Adams was excommunicated in 2013. However, tragically, the abuse of MJ continued from the time she was five years old. And in 2015, another daughter was born. Adams began abusing that daughter when she was just six weeks old. And he posted the videos that he took of himself abusing his infant daughter and his daughter MJ online. And in fact, that's how all of this came out. Not reported by the Mormon church or its officials. It was in fact, unbelievably, New Zealand officials who found a video of Adams raping his daughter MJ, who was then 10 years old, on the phone of a pedophile in that country in New Zealand that they had arrested. And this led to a global search to locate Adams. He was eventually traced due to the fact that he actually worked as a border patrol agent for Homeland Security in the U.S. He was arrested. During his interview, he confessed to the abuse of MJ and her baby sister, and he committed suicide in prison while he was awaiting trial. His wife, Lisa, during the course of the investigation, was then also charged. She did plead guilty and received a two-year sentence. So particularly horrifying case on so many levels. So Danny, I wondered, you know, what you thought about this reading the um, AP article. I mean, that's a, a short but good review. And, you know, having read the article, you know, it, it was heartbreaking. You know, you've got two children that live effectively in the middle of nowhere, father regularly abusing them. And one of the things that I found most difficult reading is actually the youngest child who who was two, when she was taken to foster placement after, you you know, was just displaying absolute terror if there was a man in the room or a man went to touch her or, you know, if her wrists were, were touched or if she was put anywhere near water. And as you say, this potentially could have been stopped, especially for the younger child. This may have never happened to her if there had been some form of mandatory reporting or or something was done years before. And as you say, the older child, MJ, there were people that, adults that were clearly very aware of the abuse that she was suffering, but it continued and continued and continued. So this is probably one of the hardest things that, that I've read that we've seen that's been published in respect of these two young girls, what was going on in the home life. And you touch upon this issue of mandatory reporting, Danny. I expect many people listening to this podcast will be unaware, but in the UK, for example, there is no requirement to report an allegation that someone might be, or a child or somebody might be being sexually abused or exploited or at risk of that. Obviously, leaving the, the moral dimension to all of that to one side, there are unsurprisingly calls for there to be a law in this country that says that if you are aware that a child is being abused or at risk of being abused, you should report it to the authorities. That is to say, the police. We've got the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, hopefully reporting in the autumn. And there are many, including me, hoping that the inquiry will say, yes, Parliament needs to legislate to bring about mandatory reporting. Because the UK is out of step with lots of other places. So, for example, they have mandatory reporting in France. 
And in Australia, for example, in the state of Victoria, they've got mandatory reporting. And given the type of case we've been talking about, there's no opt-out for religious bodies. So in Australia, the Catholic Church, for example, was saying we don't agree with an obligation on our part to report because what we get told in confession should stay in confession, the seal of confession as it's sometimes referred to, and um, we would be breaking religious doctrine if we had to compromise on what we get told in confession and report it to the authorities. Now, in some religious doctrines, if you go to confession and confess to your priest, it is seen as not confessing to the priest as such, but confessing to God. That's how, in some quarters, it is seen and why it is considered something that cannot be compromised on. But then there's this argument that says that there didn't ought to be this conflict between child protection and religious faith, religious doctrine. And I'm not an expert on all the different religions, but you've been talking in this podcast about the Mormon church. And my understanding is in the, in the states, in, in the US, some states have mandatory reporting, other states do not. And I think for the Mormons, by way of an example, the seal of confession, or whatever the equivalent terminology is in the, in the states, is not seen as 100% absolute. And there are exceptions to the rule. So perhaps, from my perspective, that recognises that there didn't ought to be a conflict between faith, religious doctrine, and child protection. But anyway, that's where I think we are, and, it, and I'm hoping very much that ICSA does recommend mandatory reporting and that the UK Parliament does legislate to bring that about and that there won't be any exceptions to the requirement to report. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it should be pointed out that in the States, as in in the US, most of the States do have mandatory reporting laws. In some States, there is a carve-out, i.e. an exception for the clergy penitent privilege. In some States, there's no carve-out for that. So regardless of whether that information is obtained in the confessional, they're still required to report it. In Arizona, ironically, where this case takes place that we're talking about today, there was an exception for a clergy penitent privilege. So everyone's required to report child abuse. There is mandatory reporting. However, if the report of abuse happens in the context of a clergy penitent situation or relationship, it's actually up to the clergy member to decide whether that confession took place in a clergy penitent setting and therefore then make the decision themselves as to whether they want to report the abuse. So, you know, that's another kind of shocking factor to this whole story in that Bishop Herod, who was the first person to learn, or as far as we know at this point, the first person within the church to, to Mormon church to learn about the abuse, did in fact have the option to report it. So, you know, in terms of what's going to happen here in the UK with mandatory reporting, I, I don't doubt that there'll be lots of religious uproar around the seal of confession, as you say, Alan. But I think, again, as you've rightly pointed out, there really doesn't have to be a discrepancy between the two. You know, the two can coexist, actually, in that mandatory reporting laws can be drafted such that there is a clergy penitent privilege except in cases of child abuse. And on that note, 
Thank you, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, if you have any comment that you wish to make, please do get in touch. Likewise, if you have any questions or concerns, please do contact us. Once again, finally, thank you for listening and please do join us for our next podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.